What do the Big Mac Index, Bitcoins, and the Commerce Clause in the U.S. Constitution have to do with 16th century Spain? Believe it or not, these are all ideas that can be traced back to the so-called School of Salamanca, a group of thinkers who formed the intellectual backbone of the Spanish Golden Age. Nobody expects the School of Salamanca. The School of Salamanca understood trade as a source of wealth and social stability. Saravia, Mercado, Molina, Mariana. All of these men shared this view, anticipating the ideas of Adam Smith and David Ricardo, as well as Madison's Commerce Clause and Montesquieu's notion of du commerce, or sweet commerce. This idea is also found in Norbert Elias, Milton Friedman, Steven Pinker, Matt Ridley, and Niall Ferguson. To quote Mariana, there's nothing more excellent in human life than that good faith by which commercial relations are established and society among men is constituted. And if commerce were to be suppressed, what would be more sad or unhappy than human life? Don Quixote is about this exact same lesson. A few Salamancans, like Bialon, clung to an antiquated objective or labor theory of value, whereby the price of an item depends upon its production costs, that is, materials and labor. That would later be Karl Marx's view. But most, such as Vitoria, Juan de Medina, Domingo de Soto, Francisco Suárez, Sarabia, Covarrubias, Molina, Mariana, and Lugo, grasped that value is subjective and based on the relative utility that people have for goods and services. This echoes St. Bernardino's and St. Antonino's complacibilitas, Latin for capacity to satisfy. This would later be Bombaywork's view when he refuted Karl Marx's view. Some may have even had obscure reasons for maintaining this view, ranging from notions of free will to scripture. The parable of the talents, for example. Matthew, chapter 25. Nevertheless, we should not underestimate just how modern this insight was. Prices depend not on objective costs, but rather on subjective demand. Both demand for the items produced as well as demand for the materials and labor involved in their production. After considering the alternatives, some of the Salamancans concluded that the morally just prices of goods and services are those determined by the market. We should admit that some, like De Soto, placed heavy qualifications on this insight. Others vaguely perceived that somehow price controls could be made to reflect the just price. Nevertheless, still others, like Sarabia and Molina, were fairly unyielding about scarcity and demand being the sole determinants of prices. Lugo and Juan Salas even understood that the market is always a dynamic process, incapable of achieving any true equilibrium. Many of the Salamancans were also against monopolies, oligopolies, and market interference by authorities. Jerónimo Castillo de Bobadilla, for example, insisted 
that barring someone entry into a market was immoral. All this thinking about labor, value, and price allows readers to appreciate the literary example of the negotiation between Don Quixote and Sancho regarding the squire's salary. Sancho wants money to buy shoes for his children, but Don Quixote has never read about employment contracts in any novels of chivalry. By the way, if you want to check out this MOOC on Don Quixote, it's really cool, and the host is like, totally sexy. Don Quixote, Don Quixote, Don Quixote, Don Quixote, Don Quixote. The School of Salamanca also allows us to appreciate the deep irony of Sancho's last edicts as governor of the Isle of Barataria, by which he placed controls on the prices of shoes and the salaries of servants. And when we talk about the Alabarataria, we must remember that the great French classical liberal thinker Friedrich Bastiat wrote a very creative essay on the subject, a perfect example of how the ideas of the School of Salamanca made their way north in all sorts of different formats. The Salamancans also debated the difference between slavery and compensated work, or to put it in the Aristotelian terms that they used, they examined the difference between conventional and natural slavery. Conventional slavery is just slavery, chains, force. Natural slavery, well, I'm giving you room and board and food and you're laboring for me. It's a mutually beneficial relationship at some point. On one hand, Vitoria's contemporary and ally, Bartolomé de las Casas, argued against slavery on natural, political, and moral grounds. Another interesting figure here is Francisco Marroquín Hurtado who tried to convince Charles V that the slaves working the lands in the New World should be paid market wages. By the way, I work at a university named after Francisco Marroquín, and they pay me my market wages. Or I'm enslaved. But that's another story. In Don Quixote, Cervantes even criticizes slavery in radically economic terms. This anticipated the thinking of Thomas Hobbes, who regarded labor as yet another commodity subject to the law of supply and demand. When Sancho threatens to go on strike, Sanson Carrasco, also known as perpetual diversion and delight of the courtyards of the schools of Salamanca, offers his services and suddenly Don Quixote observes a market. Did I not tell you, Sancho? that I would have plenty of squires from whom to choose? Cervantes recognized with Adam Smith and David Ricardo that pay for work Pay for work allows incentives, efficiencies, and competitive advantages that coercion does not. The fact that labor was now a commodity allowed Don Quixote and Sancho to overcome slavery by negotiating a salary for the squire. Is this early modern thinking about economics in Spain an illusion? Might it be just a few isolated sentences in some obscure treatises that are focused more on theological matters? Perhaps a vague response to so much gold and silver arriving from the new world. The answer is... No! The Salamancans didn't just occasionally and in the abstract think about these matters. They produced detailed treatises analyzing and evaluating a range of complicated financial instruments early modern variations on what today we would recognize as puts, calls, 
collars, forwards, swaps, credit guarantees, credit sales, loans, and annuities. There's evidence that mid-16th century Spaniards practiced double-entry accounting and used a discounted cash flow analysis of investments. Their derivatives, equity and debt arrangements, accounting practices, and financial conventions all anticipated Wall Street. We should also consider the ethical dilemmas confronted by the Salamancans. Sarabia speculates that even two highly unethical market participants who are attempting to take advantage of asymmetrical information can indeed transact in a way that is mutually beneficial. This is a vision of what modern economists would call a lemon market. Salamancans studied a world of sophisticated merchants and bankers, and they often even described the actions of some well-intentioned market regulators. What is most interesting, however, is that they also described a self-regulating marketplace in which participants assumed responsibility for obtaining information and avoiding unethical counterparties who might damage their reputations. This, by the way, is the philosophy behind Bitcoin. Nick Zabo, anyone? Why was the school of Salamanca forgotten? Writing mostly in Latin didn't help. The fact that they were Catholics made Protestants and post-Enlightenment thinkers unwilling to cite them as sources. And similarly, nationalistic allegiances made Englishmen and Frenchmen practically allergic to the idea of crediting Spaniards with anything. And as an academic, I can tell you that there's a huge element of humorous here. We always like to think that we are the first ones to think of everything, which is almost always false. What are the implications of the economic activity and theory of early modern Spain? It indicates a proto-liberal Hispanic tradition that was complex and influential. Cervantes offers good evidence of the scope of this tradition. The first modern novel turned out to be an unexpected means of transmitting the ideas of the Salamancans to classical liberals. Since Montesquieu and Jefferson read Don Quixote, they didn't technically have to read Covarrubias or Sarabia to be influenced by the school of Salamanca. Finally, there are big implications here for comparative history. Despite having a healthy merchant culture around 1550, Spain went into decline. If free markets are a good thing, then we might want to understand what went wrong. Expand your knowledge by downloading readings, podcasts, and creative comics from our online course. Sign up at salamanca.ufm.edu. It's cool and it's free. A new media production, Universidad Francisco Marroquín, Guatemala, 2018.